thank you for your extra prayers. But uh, 24 years ago when I was licensed, I remember the, uh, one of the, my mentors saying, you should always have something you're working on because you never know when the opportunity will arise for you to talk about that. And that is, uh, that is a part of a pastor's life. I would like to, um, to think today about impacting our world. How do we impact our world? And I, my, the, the kind of one of the things I want to do is, is the very beginning, look at a couple passages in Acts. And I want us to think about the early church. So in Acts, uh, first of all, uh, does anyone know? Uh, turn your Bibles to the first few chapters of Acts, so, or your copies of the Scriptures, so you can follow along. Does anyone know how many believers there were uh, gathered in the upper room? Does anyone remember from Scripture? How many believers were there gathered in the upper room when the Spirit came down in a mighty way after the resurrection? Well, let's look. We need to know these things. This is important. So, um, in, in Acts chapter 2, uh, this is the day of Pentecost. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And, and suddenly, th- there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Uh, now, earlier it had said, uh, let me just find this. I, earlier it had said that there was 120 of them. And it appears that there were men and women. Uh, this is, uh, they were gathered together in this way. They had just chosen a, a disciple to replace uh, Judas. And, and they, then they, they were in a mixed audience. They were uh, dwelling in Jerusalem, uh, devout people from, from all the nations under the heaven. And at, the sound, at this sound, the sound of the Spirit coming down, they came together and they were bewildered because they heard people speaking in their own tongues. Now... What happens then is Peter gets up, and apparently the others either translated or something, but everybody heard it in their own tongues. And there were 3,000 people added to that. Uh, in Acts 1.15, it says 120 people. Uh, after the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2.41, it says it was right around 3,000 people. Uh, so that means that uh, in, in a very short time, the church grew. But By the way, this is... a this is really fascinating figures because think about this. Jesus spends 33 years on earth. And you, you'd think that when he dies, he's unsuccessful. And all those three years of ministry, the powerful ministry, he ends up with 120 people who kind of claim to follow him. They're scared. They're in the upper room. But even if the pressure came on them, many of them had run away. And you'd think, well, was this really a success? And, and, and yet, when those 120 people experience the power of the Holy Spirit, they go out and preach, and suddenly there are 3,000 to 120. They come from at least 13 different territories and political entities. Think about this. Some of these places are at war with each other. 
And there is something bigger than war, something bigger than their, their political entities that is suddenly drawing them together. It is Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Now, it's in Acts 22, then verse 47, it says, The Lord added numbers day by day. And then in, in chapter 4, it says, He added, uh, Many were owners of land and houses. That's important for us to understand because in that world, uh, as in much of the world up until maybe more modern times, people were really segmented by social class. So the rich did not associate with the poor. You just didn't do that. They were your servants. And here are people, landowners, who are selling their property and they're sharing it equally with each other. Think about the implications of that. In Acts it says, And more than ever believers were added, both men and women. If you go back to the title slide, the first slide, uh, Mike, it says, And more than ever believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Multitudes means many. All right, next slide. So, so more, more were added, and, and then there's this account of 5,000 being added. Think about this. So in the span of a few, maybe less than a year, you went from 120 people to maybe 10 to 15,000 people. And word is spreading out about this movement throughout the entire world. And the, the two large political entities who are constantly at odds with each other, the Roman Empire and the Jewish world. The Roman Empire uh, was the most strong, had the strongest standing army in the world at that time, had conquered most of the Middle Eastern world, the world that they knew at that time. And, and, uh, and then the Jewish had the strongest form of religion in the world, the strongest sense of belonging to a people group came from the Jews. You were either a Jew or a Greek. And a Greek is everyone who isn't a Jew. And, and, and then, so they decide, well, they need to eradicate these people. So they send this uh, young, fire-breathing uh, academic, intellectual guy who is, who is a Ph.D. student in, in Jewish studies. And uh, he has studied at the best scholars in the world. He has something to prove because he doesn't come from Jerusalem. He comes from Tarsus. And he came down to Jerusalem, studied with the best scholars of the world. And he is the smartest, most powerful, most dynamic speaking Jew there is. His name is Saul of Tarsus. And he is sent to kill these people. Eradicate them. And by now the pressure is spreading these people out. And as people are going around, they're talking about what happened to, to them in Jerusalem. And it's almost like uh, keeping beach balls underwater. You ever been at a pool and tried to keep five beach balls underwater? You know, you, put, you get two down and another one pops up. And then so you let go. And, and it's just kind of like what's happening. In, in the account of Philip, the, uh, when he is out and, he, and he, the Ethiopian eunuch, who he baptizes, it says, and from there they went and preached in the Samaritan villages. It's like you cannot stop these people. Something has happened to them. By the end of Paul's life, the gospel had spread through the, uh, go to the next map. The gospel had spread through all this area. By the end of Paul's life, in the lifetime of one man, maybe 30 years, 30 to 40 years after Jesus, here, here, is, here is Judea. Jerusalem is somewhere right here. 
And Rome is over here, the greatest city of the world. This is the extent of the Roman Empire during the time of the early church, during the time of Jesus. It is, this is the northern coast of Africa. This is Egypt. This, it goes, it, this is modern-day Turkey. This is, uh, the, uh, this is the Black Sea, but this is, uh, is modern-day Russia and Ukraine and those areas. Here is Greece and Italy. This is, uh, uh, this is Spain, France, parts of Germany. This is the Isles of British, the British Isles. And by the end of Paul's life, the gospel had spread through this entire area. That is amazing. It is probably the most rapid growth of any movement ever. And by the end of the disciples' life, Thomas particularly had preached over into India. It is not even on, to, on this map. And so when you think about, think about how fast this spread. Let's just think, though, one thing. Remember at Christmas time I said that God, in Galatians, Paul says, in the fullness of time, Jesus came. God sent his Son. In the fullness of time, at the right time, at the right place. So why does Jesus come to this little backwater town of, of Jerusalem, uh, Bethlehem in Judea? Well, you, we, we Christians like to say, well, it's because Bethlehem is, you know, that's where it was forecast to be from, uh, prophesied to be from. But this, interestingly enough, is at the crossroads of the Roman world. So, this is the Great Arabian Desert. This is a, a desert, Saudi Arabia now, and, and part, other part nations here. This is the Great Arabian Desert. The Fertile Crescent is over here. Modern-day Iran and Iraq are here. And any travel from the east, and there was a lot of travel, would always travel right through this area. So when Jesus came, he came to the place where the most exposure would happen in the shortest amount of time. And this is also the height of the Roman Empire. What did Rome do that is different than other empires at this time? Well, number one, it bound together all of these territories. You could suddenly travel. These are all separate little countries, many more. You could travel, and, and many of them were at war with each other at different times and spaces. So suddenly, you could travel. You could travel from, from Judea up to Rome and, and always be in Roman areas, and you didn't need a passport, and you didn't have to worry about fighting. What else did Rome do? Uh, uh, our piano player, our, uh, what else did Rome do? Pax Romano. She's been my student for four years. And, and this is called Pax Romano, Roman peace. She could probably reiterate the things I've drilled and drilled and drilled. The other thing that Rome did is built roads. It built the first paved roads, and it, 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 uh, I have to, they told me I have to be careful with the camera. The camera is here, and if I move down too far, I get off the camera. Uh, maybe I want to be off, anyway. Uh, but they, they built paved roads that were, that were uh, in an in a arch fashion, so the water would run off, and they were wide, and they put ditches on the side. There were roads ranging all across this Roman Empire, and it was to move their army. But it also eased travel, and they protected those roads. Those roads were patrolled by the Roman government. And the other thing they did is institute a common language. Greek. Because people in this area spoke German, but if you wanted to do any business in the Roman Empire, you had to know Greek. Now suddenly, you have the erasure of boundaries, of, of parochial and provincial boundaries, national boundaries, so you could travel. You have a great road system, and you have a common language. 
and the gospel spread. So God knew the right place in the right time when to send Jesus. Now, so, and, and that is one of the reasons that, that it grew so rapidly. There are a couple, though, there are some things internally uh, that I think are very important for us to understand. We'll take the next slide. So how and why did the early church grow so rapidly? I think there are three reasons. And if uh, the Lord gives me the space of time over the next month, I might actually preach about each of these three. Because I think that this is really healthy for us to hear. Because we want to make an impact in our world. And the first reason that the church grew so rapidly is the ability of the church to outthink her critics. You know, these uh, uh, when Peter and John, uh, Peter and John are, are brought before the Sanhedrin, now the Sanhedrin is the big shots. It is the scholars of the law. They know the scriptures. Many of them have memorized the entire, large portions of the entire Old Testament. They know it forward and backward. And they are brought before them. They preach. And they, and they say, now wait, these are some uneducated fishermen? And the people perceived that they had been with Jesus. It strikes me that in our world today, uh, by the way, I'll call this persuasive apologetics. I think that we need to reclaim our rightful place as thinking people. The second thing is the transformed life of the believer, and this is especially true in, in both character and compassion. And I think that, that, that God has given us tools that we can transform our lives in such a way that people will say, wait, they are different than they were. Do you know how many people live what uh, J.P. Moreland, who, by the way, when I was thinking about this, and I've been working on this a while, when I was thinking about this, I, I remembered a book called The Kingdom Triangle by J.P. Moreland, uh, who is a, a philosopher at Biola University, and he came up with these three reasons, and I've embraced them. So the, the ability of church to outthink her critics, the transformed lives of the believers, this speaks to people. When you are different than you were, it speaks to people. And when you act differently, both in character and in compassion, it speaks to people. What I start to say is, do you know how many people in our modern world live what Moreland calls empty selves? They're just empty. They're vacuous. Nothing in them. And then, the miraculous power of God in miracles and wonders. And I happen to think that God is not done with that yet. And that He wants to keep doing miracles and wonders in our world. And when we experience those, and when we are part of those, it grows our faith in ways that are powerful, in ways that allows us to speak out and say, hey, let me tell you about what happened to me. What happened to us? Not just about me and us, but let me tell you the power behind them. Think about this. This is all about power. The power of God to change our minds, the power of God to change our, our lives, and the power of God to change the situations that we're in. And, and it also mirrors very well what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So, that's why the church grew so rapidly. Mike, if you give us the next slide. Uh, this is our world today. 
And, and by the way, do not believe the lie that Christianity is dead in our world. Christianity is growing in leaps and bounds in our world, but not as much in our Western world. More in the Eastern world, in, in places where the church is oppressed. Thousands and tens of thousands of believers are coming to Jesus daily in these places. I remember Luke Kipfer talking about his first incursion into China. And they went in back into this village way back in where no one had ever preached. And, and he presented a part of the gospel to them beginning in Genesis using firm foundations. And one of the men there said, yeah, I know that story. And Luke said, how do you know that story? And he said, I saw it on the ceilings of my bedroom at night. And so God opened up the way for these people to come. And the Chinese church, in many respects, they, they've, they started a movement a number of years ago called Back to Jerusalem. They want to grow the gospel so strongly here and work their way back to Jerusalem. So beautiful. But what about us in the Western world? How can we partake in that? Now notice I've kept the map a little blurry. Because that's often how we view our world today. We get so caught up in, in our world. Now, uh, and so I want to move right into that first one and think for the next 10 or 12 minutes what it means to be thinking Christians in our world. Now, all of us have a world view. A world view is a set of beliefs that a person accepts about important issues. It's not glasses that you put on. It's something that is inside of you. Now, you view the world through those, that, that set of beliefs but, but issues like reality, what is reality? What is really real? What is, who is God? The values about yourself and knowledge. And then the ordering of those beliefs into a rational structure. Which one of those is most important? Is the reality about God most important or truth? And it, they func- the worldview functions as a set of habits that form our beliefs that direct our actions. You do not act in a vacuum. You act out of your worldview. And you live out of your worldview. A person's actual worldview from which he moves and lives and has his being is the most important fact about that person. What you think, what you believe about God, you can say who you think God is, but what you believe about God is more important and it actually dictates how you live. Let's just uh, let's go to the next slide. I need to move rapidly through these. There are three prevailing worldviews in the Western world. First of all, there is scientific naturalism. The, the physical cosmos that is studied by science is all there is. Does this sound familiar? Yeah, evolution. You have to figure out a way. There, there is no spiritual world. Everything that exists is derived from matter. Uh, the study of science is a superior way of gaining knowledge. Does this sound familiar? Have you heard this? Just watch, listen to the modern world speak about what they think is real. Now, this is, this is ebbing in fashion in our world. This is no longer as fashionable as it once was to believe this. Let's just think about one particular instance for a way. So, so uh, if, if you believe this, what, do you, what are you going to say about God? Come on, talk. There is no God. Yeah. God's not real. He's a figment of your imagination. Now, this kind of uh, swings over into this one, but there is, uh, for instance, history. 
So your view of history, your view of history, if you believe this, you think history began in the scientific revolution. When you began to be able to measure and quantify science. Before that, people were ignorant buffoons who lived in the dark ages. Now, a much more prevalent worldview that we probably wrestle with is postmodernism. And this is a reinterpretation of what knowledge is and what counts as knowledge. There is no objective reality, truth, values, or standards. Everybody has them, but they're not objective. In fact, everything is relative to the social group that shares a narrative. Isn't that wonderful language? <laughs> we even like this language. The social group that shares a narrative. So if you're American, sure, you should believe in the American way. If you're Mennonite, you should believe in the Mennonite way. But one truth is as important as all other truths. And there is no subjective truth. In fact, truth for you is different than truth for me. Have you heard this? This is much more fashionable because it actually, and perhaps even a bit more rational than scientific uh, rationalism. Now, we have to be really careful that we don't fall into this trap. And, and much of modern Christianity, Western Christianity, has fallen into this trap. They say things like, well, yeah, uh, what's important for you, that, that's really good that you believe that strongly about that. I just don't believe that strongly in that. Now, I, there, then there is a third worldview that is called ethical monotheism. Monotheism, what does that mean? Mono, theism, one God. There are three major world religions and a few smaller ones that believe in this. Judaism, the Jews, Christianity, and Islam. And, and they, they would, all three argue that exclusive worship of one God in which that God is a source for guiding humanity in ethics and values and everything like that. Uh, they believe in an in a inspired sacred writing that guides the followers. And, and they also, all three believe that the present life is only a portion of reality. So um, think about what I, the example I used here. If you believe in, in this, then who is God? What, what might be your beliefs about God? If, you believe in post, if you're a postmodernist thinker, how might you think about God? Yeah, gives me what I want. He's what I make him to be. Or she. Or it. Or nothingness. How much do you think about history? It's not really that important. History is not really that important because, well, they, they had their own social narrative and that's why they did it. And you cannot condemn anything, including, and, and here's where it breaks down. You say things like, well, okay, so the Holocaust. The Holocaust is a construct of a social group that shares a narrative. The Nazis were a social group that shared a narrative. And so why should it not be important that, that they follow through? Hmm. See the problem there? Okay. And, uh, it, but if you believe in, in a God, then you believe that history has a starting point and is going somewhere. Now, which one do you embrace? Which one do you rationally embrace? 
Which one would you say you embrace, but which one do you live? If your worldview is, is best seen in how you live, then think about this. Is truth relative, or is, is, it, is there something bigger? Let's go to the next slide. And, and here is where uh, I, I want you to turn now to, while well, I have it up here, this is 2 Corinthians 10, and I want you to just think with me for a little bit about this, about this passage of Scripture. This is now the Apostle Paul. Remember who he is. He's the leading thinker of the time uh, as a Jew, and now he's a Christian. And he says, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we wear human bodies, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. For years I thought this scripture was something like this. I have a bad thought. Oh, I've got to go corral that thing and smash it down and stump on it. Well, suppose it isn't that. Suppose, let's just look at what Paul is saying here and, and try to lay down the things you've heard. For the weapons of our warfare, the fight that we are in against evil, both in ourselves and in the world around us. And here is where most Christians, if you do not have a, the idea that Jesus came to institute a kingdom with his own set of ethics and values, and, and Jesus, Jesus, Jesus' followers were very political. They just chose the third way, if you want to call it that. They said, our kingdom is not of this world. If it were so, Jesus says this, my servants would fight. He's telling Pilate, the leader of the Roman Empire, with the biggest standing army in the world, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I'd be at war with you. But I am not going to fight it the way you think I should. I am going to defeat evil by doing something different. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have the divine power to destroy strongholds. Strongholds means uh, exactly, that's a good word for it, it means territories or areas of strength. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Notice a couple things here. Destroy, destroy. We do that. And, and divine power. We, who is the we here? But, but who, is the, who, who has the divine power? Who has the divine power? Paul? Yeah, sure. Much easier if it's Paul. It's us! We have the divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. We do that, we do that by, by bringing the, a way of thinking. We outthink and we, we become intelligent enough that we can do this. Now, interestingly enough, uh, uh, this word power, you need to know this. There are a couple words for power. One is exosia in Greek. And that means when I give you authority. I tell you to stand. You stand. That's exosia. Dunamis, which is where we get our word dynamite from, means power inerrant in something because of what it is. 
And that is what this word, uh, the root of this. But we have the divine power because of who we are to destroy the strongholds. In order to destroy the strongholds, we need to become thinking Christian. Um, by the way, arguments, we destroy arguments. That word, the, the definition of that word means the act of computing. The act of thinking. I'll take the next slide. So this is a, the picture that I want to just kind of th- have you think through a little bit. This is, this is, we are not inside the castle. We are outside the castle. We are taking over the, the stronghold of the enemy. We're, this is not a defensive battle we're waging. It is an offensive battle. For the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We are on the offense. When Jesus came to earth, it was like D-Day. We have invaded the devil's territory that the devil had since the Garden of Eden. And when God promised back there in the Garden of Eden, he said, I'm going to bring something that will destroy the Satan. He brought Jesus. Jesus destroyed the power of death. And it's a strong, and we're marching into the devil's territory foot by foot, inch by inch. And so we're on the outside preparing the offensive. Think about the people on the inside they have to have this kind of feeling of fear because they see the vast army arrayed against them. Now, inside, now, if we're out here sniping at each other, we're in trouble. We need to band together and understand that this, this calls for something from us. So let's go to the next slide. So how do we do this? We do it by making choices to become students, learners, and disciples of the smartest person who ever lived. Dallas Willard says this, Jesus is the smartest person who ever lived. And I, I wrestled with that for a long time. What about Einstein? Or Steve Jobs? Or whoever? Well, Jesus is smarter than they are. And, and I, 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 it is worth the time. I'm, I'm running... Um, I overprepared. And in 1 Timothy 4, 7 and 8, it says this. If you put these things before the brothers and sisters, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith. Being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now that word trained means educated. Being educated in the words of faith. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myth. Rather, train yourself for godliness. That's a different word. That means discipline, like an athlete training. The first word train means educate yourself in the Word of God, in the, in the nature and character of God. Train yourself, and the second word is then use the discipline to become more godly. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. And it goes on, and at the end of that, he says, uh, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise your youth, and remember who you are. And then in 2 Timothy 3, we know this passage well because of uh, the last verse in the, in the chapter where it says, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It, it, there it says, in, in chapter 3, verse 13, it says this. Again, it's Paul talking to a young Christian. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceived and being deceived, but as for you, continue in what you have been educated in, in what you've learned, and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. 
So become educated. What does this mean for us practically today? How do you grow as a student? I think the second thing is by creating worlds in which our children are taught to think well and are educated properly. This passage in Proverbs 22.6 says, Train up a child in the way he should go. That does not mean discipline your children so they are well behaved. Spank them hard. Right, children? Oh, no, I don't answer that. This means figure out what the calling, as much as you can as a parent, figure out what your child is designed for and give them the necessary tools to be that. It is really easy, it would be really easy for me as a parent if I had a, a son to want him to be like me, to want him to love books and art and that kind of stuff. But maybe God designed him differently. Maybe he's supposed to be the best technical engineer, the best plumber. There is no, there is nothing wrong. I, I, and again, I'm not talking about that we all have to become academics. I'm saying that we need to become the best people who we are in, in the places we're called to be. If you are a nurse, you practice being the best nurse you can. You become educated because in doing that, you become more valuable to the kingdom of God. But it requires effort. And that's what we rebel against. And then by encouraging, developing, and supporting organizations and programs that give people the opportunity to think well. It is high time we took back our world. And we do that, one of the ways we do that is by becoming thinking people. Now, what, where should we learn from? I promise uh, uh, this is the last slide. Uh, well, it isn't the last one, but it's where we're going to end up. So, so how do we, where do we learn from? Sources to learn from. Uh, I, I want us to think about this. I want us to think about the very, the very central thing that all of us should study, the very central thing that all of us should become acquainted with better is the nature and character of God. Who is God? How does He move in my life? Now, notice what is conspicuously absent in the middle there. You all thought it would be maybe the Bible. But Jesus says... You know the scriptures to the Jews. You know them hindwards and forwards, but they can't save you. I have come that you might be saved. And so outside the next circle of things that we need to learn from is scriptures. And that's probably chief. That shouldn't be equally divided. I didn't have much time. And then creation. God calls us to learn from creation. Go to the ant, thou sluggard. Next time you feel really sluggish and lazy, go check an ant. That's what it says. It's what you're supposed to do. And we should learn from history because of the, the way that God moved in history. And then we should learn from creation's creation. You should all at least become uh, reasonably adept at having conversations with people about things going on in our world today and about events and art and music and culture. Because it's in those venues, uh, the Apostle Paul comes to Mars Hill. And he sees an inscription there. And he said, by the way, your own poet has said, and he quotes a poet, quotes a piece of poetry to them that all the men, there, uh, men and women there understood. And it's that venue. So 
let's say, um, we say, um, well, yes, the impeachment process. It is going on right now, right? Uh, let, me, let me tell you, I, I don't understand everything about that, but let me tell you, I, uh, now this is, uh, you, you have to kind of carry a conversation. You can't do this right away. But then you begin to talk about, well, so what is, really, what is really valuable in this process? And what would make a good leader? And how do good leaders function? And, oh, wait, uh, I have chosen to... Uh, they, they'll, they'll ask you, if you do this, they'll ask you, well, what are you, a Republican or a Democrat? They'll ask you that. And you'll say, well, um, what will you say? But anyway, uh, I would say something like this. Well, I, I, I find uh, positions in in uh, both platforms uh, that, that I find appealing, but at the heart of what I care about is a different kingdom, the way of Jesus, who won't be impeached. They tried that once. Didn't work. Or you go to an art museum and you think, wow, that's a beautiful piece of art. And then you go to one of those postmodern pieces of art and you think, That's splatter on the wall. Let's stand together. The call to us is to become thinking. That doesn't mean you should... Some of you should go to college. Some of you should get more education. But all of you should begin to take the piece of you that is thinking and put it into action so that we can outthink the critics in our world. Lord Jesus, I ask and invite your Holy Spirit to move down into this room like it did in the time of the disciples and move in the hearts of our people to say, what is it that really we care about and how can we become more like you? How can we be your disciples in in thinking and in character, and, and therefore release your power to work on earth. Help us to be the, grow in, our, in thinking. Help us to destroy the strongholds of the evil one in our world. In Jesus' name, amen.